In the Book of Mormon, we read of young Nephi who was commanded by the Lord to build a ship. He was quick to obey this commandment, but his brothers were skeptical. When my brethren saw that I was about to build a ship, he wrote, They began to murmur against me, saying, Our brother is a fool, for he thinks that he can build a ship, yea, and he also thinks that he can cross these great waters. But Nephi was not discouraged. He had no experience building ships, but he had a strong personal testimony that the Lord would prepare a way to accomplish the thing which he had commanded. With this powerful testimony and motivation in his heart, Nephi built a ship in which they crossed the great waters, despite the strong opposition expressed by his faithless brothers. Let me share with you a personal experience from my own youth about the power of righteous motives. After the turmoil of the Second World War, my family ended up in Russian-occupied East Germany. When I attended fourth grade, I had to learn Russian as my first foreign language in school. I found this quite difficult because of the Cyrillic alphabet, but it, as time went on, I seemed to do all right. When I turned 11, we had to leave East Germany overnight because of the political orientation of my father. Now I was going to school in West Germany, which was American-occupied at that time. There in school, all children were required to learn English and not Russian. To learn Russian had been difficult, but English was impossible for me. <laughs> I thought my mouth was not made for speaking English. My teachers struggled, my parents suffered, and I knew English was definitely not my language. But then something changed in my young life. Almost daily, I rode my bicycle to the airport and watched airplanes take off and land. I read, studied, and learned everything I could find about aviation. It was my greatest desire to become a pilot. I could already picture myself in the cockpit of an airliner or in a military fighter plane. I felt deep in my heart this was my thing. Then I learned that to become a pilot, I needed to speak English. <laughs> Overnight, to the total surprise of everybody, it appeared as if my mouth had changed. I was able to learn English. It still took a lot of work, persistence, and patience, but I was able to learn English. Why? Because of a righteous and strong motive. Our motives and thoughts ultimately influence our actions. The testimony of the truthfulness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful motivating force in our lives. Jesus repeatedly emphasized the power of good thoughts and proper motives. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not. Fear not. The testimony of Jesus Christ in the restored gospel will help us in our lives to learn of God's specific plan for us and then to act accordingly. It gives us assurance of the reality, truth, and goodness of God of the teachings and atonement of Jesus Christ and of the divine calling of Latter-day Prophets. Our testimony 
motivates us to live righteously, and righteous living will cause our testimony to grow stronger. What is a testimony? For members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the term testimony is a warm and familiar word in our religious expressions. It is tender and sweet. It has always a certain sacredness about it. When we talk about testimony, we refer to feelings of our heart and mind rather than an accumulation of logical, sterile facts. It is a gift of the Spirit, a witness from the Holy Ghost, that certain concepts are true. A testimony is the sure knowledge or assurance from the Holy Ghost of the truth and divinity of the Lord's work in these latter days. A testimony is the abiding, living, and moving conviction of the truths revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we bear testimony, we declare the absolute truth of the gospel message. In a time when many perceive truth as relative, a declaration of absolute truth is not very popular, nor does it seem politically correct or opportune. Testimonies of things how they really are are bold, true, and vital because they have eternal consequences for mankind. Satan wouldn't mind if we declared the message of our faith and gospel doctrine as negotiable according to the circumstances. Our firm conviction of gospel truths is an anchor in our lives. It is steady and reliable as the North Star. A testimony is very personal and may be a little different for each of us because everyone is a unique person. However, a testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ will always include these clear and simple truths. God lives. He is our living Father in heaven, and we are his children. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and the Savior of the world. Joseph Smith is the prophet of God through whom the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored in the latter days. The Book of Mormon is the Word of God, and President Gordon B. Hinckley, his counselors, and the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles are the prophets, seers, and revelators in our day. As we acquire deeper knowledge of these truths and of the plan of salvation by the power and the gift of the Holy Ghost, we can come to know the truth of all things. How do we get a testimony? We all know that it is easier to talk about a testimony than to acquire one. The process to receive one is based on the law of the harvest. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. No good thing comes without effort and sacrifice. If we have to work hard to obtain a testimony, it will make us and our testimony even stronger. And if we share our testimony, it will grow. A testimony is a most precious possession because it is not acquired by logic or reason alone. It cannot be purchased with earthly possessions, and it cannot be given as a present or inherited from our ancestors. 
We cannot depend on the testimonies of other people. We need to know for ourselves. President Gordon B. Hinckley said, Every Latter-day Saint has a responsibility to know for himself or herself with a certainty beyond doubt that Jesus is the resurrected living Son of the living God. The source of this sure knowledge and firm conviction is divine revelation for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We receive this testimony when the Holy Spirit speaks to the Spirit within us. We will receive a calm and unwavering certainty that will be the source of our testimony and conviction irrespective of our culture, race, language, or socioeconomic background. These promptings of the Spirit, rather than human logic alone, will be the true foundation upon which our testimony will be built. The core of this testimony will always be in the faith in and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and His divine mission, who in the scriptures says of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we receive a personal testimony rooted in the witness of the Holy Ghost? The pattern is outlined in the scriptures. First, desire to believe. The Book of Mormon encourages us, if you will awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith, even if you can no more than desire to believe. Some may say, I cannot believe. I am not a religious person. Just consider, God promises us divine help if we have only a desire to believe. But it has to be a true and not a pretended desire. Second, search the scriptures. Have questions. Study them out. Search in the scriptures for answers. Again, the Book of Mormon has good advice for us. If you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart through diligent study of the Word of God, the good seed will begin to swell within your breasts if you will not resist with unbelief. This good seed will enlarge your soul and enlighten your understanding. Third, do the will of God. Keep the commandments. It is not enough to enter in a scholarly debate if we want to know for ourselves that the kingdom of God has been restored upon the earth. Casual study is also not enough. We have to get in on the action ourselves. And that means learning and then doing God's will. We need to come to Christ and follow His teachings. The Savior taught, My doctrine is not mine, but His that sent me. If any man will do His will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. And He said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Fourth, ponder, fast, and pray. To receive knowledge from the Holy Ghost, we must ask Heavenly Father for it. We must trust 
that God loves us and that he will help us to recognize the promptings of the Holy Ghost. The Book of Mormon reminds us, when you read these things, remember how merciful the Lord has been unto the children of man from the creation of Adam even down until the time that you shall receive these things and ponder it in your hearts. Ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are true. And if you ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And the prophet Alma said, I testify unto you that I do know that these things are true. And how do you suppose that I know of their surety? Behold, I have fasted and prayed that I might know these things of myself. And the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation. My dear brothers and sisters, Alma received his witness by fasting and prayer more than 2,000 years ago, and we may have the same sacred experience today. What is a testimony good for? A testimony provides proper perspective, motivation, and a solid foundation on which to build a life of purpose and personal growth. It is a constant source of confidence, a true and faithful companion during good times and bad. A testimony provides us with a reason for hope and gladness. It helps us cultivate a spirit of optimism and happiness and enables us to rejoice in the beauties of nature. A testimony motivates us to choose the right at all times and in all circumstances. It motivates us to draw near to God, allowing Him to draw nearer to us. Our personal testimony is a protective shield, and like an iron rod, it is guiding us safely through darkness and confusion. Nephi's testimony gave him the courage to stand up and be counted as one who obeys the Lord. He did not murmur, doubt, or fear, no matter what the circumstances. When times got tough, he said, I will go and do what the Lord has commanded, for I know that the Lord shall prepare a way to accomplish it. Just as the Lord knew Nephi, God knows us and loves us. This is our time. These are our days. We are where the action is. Our firm personal testimony will motivate us to change ourselves and then bless the world. Of this I testify and leave you my blessing as an apostle of the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a deacon, like many of you young men, my father and I hiked to a mountain stream to fish for trout. As my dad attached the bait to the hook on the end of my fishing line, he told me that I would need to set the hook in the fish's mouth when it tried to take the bait or it would get away. I did not understand what it meant to set the hook, so he explained to me that the hook needed to be embedded in the fish's mouth when it struck at the bait so it could not shake the hook loose. 
and that the hook would be set if I quickly pulled back on the pole when the fish tried to take the bait. Now, I really wanted to catch a fish. So I stood on the bank of that mountain stream like a coiled spring, every muscle taut, waiting for the telltale movement at the end of my pole, which would signal that the fish was trying to take the bait. After a few minutes, I noticed movement in the end of my pole, and in that instant, I jerked back on the pole with all of my strength, expecting a big fight with the fish. To my surprise, I watched as that poor trout with the hook now set very firmly in his mouth, was launched from the water into the air over my head and landed on the ground flopping behind me. (laughs) I have two observations from that experience. First, a fish out of water is miserable. Although its gills, fins, and tail work very well in water, they are all but useless on land. Second, the unfortunate fish I caught that day perished because it was deceived into treating something very dangerous, even fatal, as worthwhile, or at least as sufficiently intriguing to warrant a closer look and perhaps a nibble. My dear brethren of the Ronic priesthood, there are a couple of lessons to be learned from this. First, a basic purpose of your life, as Lehi taught, is to have joy. In order to have joy, You need to understand that as a child of your Heavenly Father, you inherited divine traits and spiritual needs, and just like a fish needs water, you need the gospel and the companionship of the Holy Ghost to be truly, deeply happy. Because you are the offspring of God, it is incompatible with your eternal nature to do wrong and feel right. It cannot be done. It is part of your spiritual DNA, as it were, that peace Joy and happiness will be yours only to the degree you live the gospel. In contrast, to the degree that you choose not to live the gospel, you will be as miserable as a fish out of water. As Alma stated to his son Coriantin, Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. And now, my son, all men that are in a carnal state are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, They are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. Note that to be without God in the world, in other words, to refuse to live his gospel and therefore lack the companionship of the Spirit, is to be in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the, note that this is singular, meaning it is the only great plan of happiness. If you opt for any other way of life, or try to live only the parts of the gospel that seem convenient, such a choice will cheat you of the full, resplendent joy and happiness for which you were designed by our loving Father in heaven and his Son. Now to the second lesson from my fishing experience. Just as a fish in a mountain stream must be careful of the lure's place in its path to avoid being pulled away from the water, so must you and I be wise in order to avoid being pulled away from a happy, gospel-centered life. Remember that, as Lehi observed, the devil seeks that all men might be miserable like unto himself and obtains power to captivate us when we involve ourselves in unclean and evil things. Thus, do not be deceived into even nibbling at unworthy things, for Satan stands ready to set the hook.'" 
It is the very real risk of the hook being set, subtly or suddenly, that led the ancient ancient prophet Moroni, who actually saw our day, to pointedly warn you and me to touch not the evil gift, nor the unclean thing. There is much that is evil and unclean in music, the internet, movies, magazines, and in alcohol, drugs, and tobacco. As to any evil and unclean thing, my young friends, do not even touch it. Disguise in such things as a hook that sets subtly and much more suddenly than you dare think. And it can be an excruciatingly painful process to extract the hook. Alma described that for him, the process of repentance was nigh unto death. Indeed, he stated that nothing could be so exquisite and bitter as were my pains. There may be some of you who have been involved with that which is evil or unclean. Take hope in the doctrinal and historical fact that Lehi's, the Amla's faith in the Lord led him to repent, and as a direct result of his repentance, he experienced such happiness through the power of the atonement of Christ that in his words, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. Such will be your experience as you seek the Lord through repentance. Each of us needs to repent to some degree or another. To repent means to make the real changes in your life the Savior desires you to make for your happiness. Repentance is the great enabling principle of the gospel. When your faith in the Lord causes personal change, such action on your part, as Helaman states, bringeth you under the power of the Redeemer, under the salvation of your souls. As you seek to change, remember that our loving Savior, as Alma states, has all power to save every man that believeth on his name and bringeth forth fruit meet for repentance. This is a powerful, liberating, hope-filled doctrine. The prophet Joseph Smith learned from firsthand experience that the Lord expects us to avoid misery by living his gospel and wants us to understand that we can repent. When he lost the 116 pages of the manuscript of the Book of Mormon translation by giving in to the persuasions of men, Joseph was miserable. The Lord told him, You should have been faithful, and God would have extended his arm and supported you against all the fiery darts of the adversary, and he would have been with you in every time of trouble. Such is the case for each of you young men. Be faithful, and you will be supported by the hand of God. The prophet was then reminded that, as with each of us, he would be forgiven if he repented. Imagine what joy he felt when he heard the Lord state, But remember, God is merciful. Therefore repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I gave you, and thou art still chosen. My invitation to each of you tonight is to live the gospel, to be truly happy. Avoid evil and the misery it brings. And if you have become involved with evil or unclean things, Make the changes the Lord desires of you for your own happiness, and I witness that he will enable you to succeed through his matchless power. As you accept this invitation, you will reap lasting happiness and build the foundation of your life upon the rock of our Redeemer, such that when the shafts of the evil one 
and the storms of the world assail you, they will, as Helaman taught, have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bear my ardent witness. He is the rock, the one sure foundation for happiness and healing. He lives, has all power in heaven and earth, knows your name, and he loves you. In the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Years ago, when my brothers and I were boys, our mother had radical cancer surgery. She came very close to death. Much of the tissue in her neck and shoulder had to be removed, and for a very long time it was difficult, painful for her to use her right arm. One morning, about a year after the surgery, my father took mother to an appliance store and asked the manager to show her how to use a machine he had for ironing clothes. The machine was called an ironwright. It was operated from a chair by pressing pedals with one's knees to lower a padded roller against a heated metal surface and turn the roller, feeding in shirts, pants, dresses, and other articles. You can see that this would make ironing, of which there was a great deal in our family of five boys, much easier, especially for a woman with limited use of her arm. Mother was shocked when Dad told the manager they would buy the machine and then paid cash for it. Despite my father's good income as a veterinarian, mother's surgery and medications had left them in a difficult financial situation. On the way home, my mother was upset. How can we afford it? Where did the money come from? How will we get along now? Finally, Dad told her that he had gone without lunches for nearly a year to save enough money. Now when you iron, he said, you won't have to stop and go into the bedroom and cry until the pain in your arm stops. She didn't know he knew about that. I was not aware of my father's sacrifice and active love for my mother at the time, but now that I know, I say to myself, there is a man. The prophet Lehi pled with his rebellious sons, saying, Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. By age, Laman and Lemuel were men, but in terms of character and spiritual maturity, they were still as children. They murmured and complained if asked to do anything hard. They didn't accept anyone's authority to correct them. They didn't value spiritual things. They easily resorted to violence, and they were good at playing the victim. We see some of the same attitudes today. Some act as if man's highest goal should be his own pleasure. Permissive social mores have let men off the hook, as it were, so that many think it acceptable to father children out of wedlock and to cohabit rather than marry. Dodging commitments is considered smart but sacrificing for the good of others, naive. For some, a life of work and achievement is optional. A psychologist studying the growing phenomenon of what he calls young men stuck in neutral describes this scenario. Justin goes off to college for a year or two, 
wastes thousands of dollars of his parents' money, then gets bored and comes home to take up residence in his old room, the same bedroom where he lived when he was in high school. Now he's working 16 hours a week at Kinko's or part-time at Starbucks. His parents are pulling their hair out. Justin, you're 26 years old. You're not in school. You don't have a career. You don't even have a girlfriend. What's the plan? When are you going to get a life? What's the problem, Justin asks. I haven't gotten arrested for anything. I haven't asked you guys for money. Why can't you just chill? <laughs> How's that for ambition? <laughs> we who hold the priesthood of God cannot afford to drift. We have work to do. We must arise from the dust of self-indulgence and be men. It's a wonderful aspiration for a boy to become a man, strong and capable, someone who can build and create things, run things, someone who makes a difference in the world. It's a wonderful aspiration for those of us who are older to make the vision of true manhood a reality in our lives and be models for those who look to us for an example. In large measure, true manhood is defined in our relationship to women. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have given us the ideal to pursue in these words. The family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to His eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. By divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. Over the years, I have visited members of the Church in many countries, and despite differences in circumstances and cultures, everywhere I have been impressed with the faith and capacity of our women, including some of the very young. So many of them possess a remarkable faith and goodness. They know the scriptures. They are poised and confident. I ask myself, do we have men to match these women? Are our young men developing into worthy companions that such women can look up to and respect? President Gordon B. Hinckley, speaking in this meeting in April 1998, gave specific counsel for young men. The girl you marry will take a terrible chance on you. <laughs> you will largely determine the remainder of her life. Work for an education. Get all the training that you can. The world will largely pay you what it thinks you are worth. Paul did not mince words when he wrote to Timothy, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Integrity is fundamental to being men. Integrity means being truthful, but it also means accepting responsibility and honoring commitments and covenants. President N. Eldon Tanner, a former counselor in the First Presidency and a man of integrity, told of someone who sought his advice. A young man came to me not long ago and said, I made an agreement with a man that requires me to make certain payments each year. I'm in arrears, and I can't make those payments, for if I do, it is going to cause me to lose my home. What shall I do? I looked at him and said, keep your agreement. Even if it costs me my home, 
I said, I'm not talking about your home. I'm talking about your agreement. And I think your wife would rather have a husband who would keep his word, meet his obligations, and have to rent a home than to have a home with a husband who will not keep his covenants and his pledges. Good men sometimes make mistakes. A man of integrity will honestly face and correct his mistakes, and that is an example we can respect. Sometimes men try but fail. Not all worthy objectives are realized, despite one's honest and best efforts. True manhood is not always measured by the fruits of one's labors, but by the labors themselves, by one's striving. Though he will make some sacrifices and deny himself some pleasures in the course of honoring his commitments, the true man leads a rewarding life. He gives much, but he receives more, and he lives content in the approval of his Heavenly Father. The life of true manhood is the good life. Most importantly, when we consider the admonition to be men, we must think of Jesus Christ. When Pilate brought Jesus forth wearing a crown of thorns, he declared, Behold the man. Pilate may not have fully understood the significance of his own words, but the Lord indeed stood before the people then, as he stands today, the highest ideal of manhood. Behold the man. The Lord asked his disciples what manner of men they should be, and then answered, Verily I say unto you, even as I am. That is our ultimate quest. What did he do that we can emulate as men? Jesus rejected temptation. When confronted by the great tempter himself, Jesus yielded not to the temptation. He countered with Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Gospel commandments and standards are our protection also, and as the Savior we may draw strength from the Scriptures to resist temptation. The Savior was obedient. He forsook completely the natural man and yielded His will to the Father. He was baptized to show that, according to the flesh, He humbleth Himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that He would be obedient unto Him in keeping His commandments. Jesus went about doing good. He employed the divine powers of the holy priesthood to bless those in need, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. Jesus told His apostles, Whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. As His fellow servants, we may become great in His kingdom through love and service. The Savior was fearless in opposing evil and error. Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. He called upon all to repent and be forgiven. So might we stand firm in defending sacred things and in raising the warning voice. He gave His life to redeem mankind. Surely we can accept responsibility for those He entrusts to our care. Brethren, let us be men, even as He is. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
I am grateful to be with you in this great priesthood meeting. All of us are members of a quorum in the priesthood. That may not seem remarkable to you, but it does to me. I was ordained a deacon in the Aaronic priesthood in a tiny branch of the Church. There was only one family in the branch. We had no chapel. We met in our house. I was the only deacon and my brother the only teacher. So I know what it is like to exercise the priesthood alone without serving with others in a quorum. I was content in that small branch without a quorum. I had no way to know what I was missing. And then my family moved across a continent to where there were many priesthood holders and strong quorums. I have learned over the years that the strength in a quorum doesn't come from the number of priesthood holders in it, nor does it come automatically from the age and maturity of the members. Rather, the strength of a quorum comes in large measure from how completely its members are united in righteousness. That unity in a strong quorum of the priesthood is not like anything I have experienced in an athletic team or club or any other organization in the world. The words of Alma recorded in the book of Mosiah come closest to describing the unity I have felt in the strongest priesthood quorums. Quote, and he commanded them that there should be no contention one with another, but that they should look forward with one eye, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and in love one towards another. Alma even told his people how to qualify for that unity. He told them that they should preach nothing save it were repentance and faith on the Lord who had redeemed his people. What Alma was teaching and what is true in any unified priesthood quorum I have seen is that the members' hearts are being changed through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. That is how their hearts become knit together. You can see then why the Lord charges the presidents of quorums to lead in the way that He does. In the 107th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, He uses almost the same words describing the duties of the president in each quorum. The deacon's quorum president is to teach the quorum members their duty as it is given in the covenants. The president of the teacher's quorum is to teach its members their duties as given in the covenants. The president of the priest's quorum, who is the bishop, is commanded to preside over 48 priests and sit in council with them to teach them their du the duties of their office as is given in the covenants. The elders' quorum president is charged this way. Again, the duty of the president over the office of elders is to preside over 96 elders and to sit in council with them and to teach them according to the covenants. It is easy to understand why God wants His quorums taught according to the covenants. Covenants are solemn promises. Heavenly Father has promised us all eternal life if we will make and keep covenants. For instance, we receive the priesthood with a covenant to be faithful in helping Him in His work. 
The people we baptize into His Church promise to have faith in Jesus Christ and to repent and to keep His commandments. Every covenant requires faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to His commandments to qualify for the forgiveness and purified hearts necessary to inherit eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. Now, you might ask, does that mean that every lesson in the Quorum must only be about faith and repentance? Of course not, but it does mean that the teacher and those who participate must always desire to bring the Spirit of the Lord into the hearts of the members in the room to produce faith and a determination to repent and to be clean. And that desire goes beyond the walls of the room where the quorum meets. In a truly united quorum, that desire extends to the members wherever they are. I saw that a few years ago in a deacon's quorum where I had been called to teach the lessons. A few of the deacons failed to come to the quorum meetings from time to time. I knew that the teaching in that quorum and in every quorum was the charge of the president who had keys. He was to sit in council with all of them. And so I have made a habit of seeking the counsel of the one with the charge from God by asking him, what do you think I should teach? What should I try to accomplish? I learned to follow his counsel because I knew God had given him responsibility for the teaching of his quorum members. I knew one Sunday that God had honored the charge to a young quorum president. I was teaching the deacons. I noticed an empty chair. There was a recording device sitting on the chair, and I could see that it was running. After the class, a boy sitting next to the empty chair picked up the recorder. As he started to leave the room, I asked him why he had recorded our discussion. He smiled and said that another deacon had told him that he wouldn't be in the quorum that day. He was taking the recorder to his friend at home so that he could listen to our lesson. I had trusted in the responsibility given to a young quorum president, and so help from heaven came. The Spirit came to touch the members in that room and sent one of them to a friend to try to strengthen his faith and lead him to repentance. The deacon carrying the recorder had learned according to the covenants, and he reached out to help his friend and fellow member in the quorum. Priesthood quorum members are taught in more ways than by lessons in a class. The quorum is a service unit, and the members learn in their service. A quorum can give greater service than the members could give alone, and that power is multiplied by more than their numbers. Every quorum has a leader with authority and responsibility to direct priesthood service. I have seen the power that comes when quorums are called to move out to help in times of disaster. Time and again, I have had people outside the Church express surprise and admiration for the effectiveness of the Church in organizing to give help. It seems to them like a miracle. In all priesthood service, the miracle of power comes because leaders and members honor the authority of those who direct the service in priesthood quorums across the earth. Miracles of power can come as quorums reach out to serve others. They come as well when the priesthood service is to members within the quorum. A teacher's quorum present met early one Sunday before the quorum meeting with his counselors and with the quorum secretary. After prayerful consideration in council, 
he felt inspired to call a deacon to invite to the next quorum meeting another deacon who had never attended. He knew that the deacon who had never attended had a father who was not a member of the Church and that his mother had little interest in the Church. The designated deacon accepted the call from his president to contact the boy. He went. I watched him go, actually. He went a little reluctantly. <laughs> he looked as if it might be a hard task. The boy he invited to come with him to Quorum came only a few times before his family moved away. Many years later, I was in a state conference thousands of miles away from where that deacon's quorum had met. Between conference meetings, a man I did not know came up to me and asked if I knew someone. He gave me a name. It was the boy who was called by his deacon's quorum president to go after and care for one lost sheep. The man said to me, Will you thank him for me? I am the grandfather of the boy he invited to a deacon's quorum years ago. He has grown now, but he still talks with me about the deacon who invited him to go with him to church. He had tears in his eyes, and so did I. A young quorum president had been inspired to reach out to a lost member of his quorum. He was inspired to send a boy on the errand to serve. That president had done what the master would have done. And in the process, a young president trained a new priesthood holder in his duty to serve others according to the covenants. Hearts were knit, which were still connected after more than 20 years and across thousands of miles. Quorum unity lasts when it is forged in the Lord's service and in the Lord's way. One of the hallmarks of a strong quorum is the feelings of fellowship among its members. They care for each other. They help each other. Quorum presidents can build that fellowship best if they remember the Lord's purpose for unity in the quorum. It is, of course, so that they will help each other, but it is more, much more. It is so that they will lift and encourage each other to serve in righteousness with the Master in His work to offer eternal life to Heavenly Father's children. Understanding that will change the way we try to build fellowship in the quorum. For instance, it might even change the way a teacher's quorum plays basketball. The members might hope to build fellowship more than just to win a game. They could choose to invite a boy who is always left out because he doesn't play very well. If he accepts and comes, the members of the quorum are likely to pass the ball a little more looking for the open man, especially the boy who isn't likely to score. Twenty years later, they may not remember whether they won that night, but they will always remember how they played together and why and whose team it was. It was the Lord who said, If you're not one, you're not mine. Understanding why the Lord wants fellowship can change the way an elders' quorum party is planned. I've been to a party where the man who planned it was a convert to the Church. Finding the gospel was the sweetest thing that ever happened to him. So neighbors and friends, not yet members of the Church, were invited to the party. I still remember the feeling of fellowship as we visited with them about what the Church meant to us. I felt in that party more than fellowship with brothers in the priesthood. The Master invited His disciples to His first Quorum of the Twelve in His mortal ministry this way, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so that night at a party,
I felt that I was in the fellowship of the Master and His disciples, becoming what He wants us to be. I was blessed with that same feeling of fellowship by a priesthood leader when I was in the Aaronic Priesthood. He understood how to build priesthood fellowship that can last. He arranged with the owner of a woodlot for us to spend an afternoon chopping wood and putting it in bundles. The bundles were for widows so that they could have a fire in the cold of winter. I still remember the warmth of fellowship I felt with my priesthood brethren, but even more, I remember feeling that I was doing what the Savior would do, and so I felt fellowship with Him. We can build that precious fellowship in our quorums in this life, and then we can have it forever in glory and in families if we live according to the covenants. My prayer is that you will accept the Lord's invitation to become united as one in our quorums of the priesthood. He has marked the way, and He has promised us that with His help, good quorums can become great quorums. He wants that for us, and I know that He needs stronger quorums to bless the children of our Heavenly Father according to the covenants. I have faith that He will. I know that our Heavenly Father lives. I know that His Son, Jesus Christ, atoned for our sins and those of everyone we will ever meet. He was resurrected. He lives. He leads His Church. He holds the keys of the priesthood. Through inspiration to those who hold keys in the Church, He calls every president of every priesthood quorum. I testify that the priesthood was restored with all its keys to Joseph Smith, and I bear solemn witness that those keys have been passed to the present day to the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who is the President of the priesthood in all the earth. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in Heaven wants each of us to enjoy peace and happiness in mortal life. Our Master Jesus Christ and His prophets have taught how to have that peace and happiness, even in a world that is ever more challenging, with increasing conflict and an intense concentration of alluring temptations. I will illustrate the wrong way to find peace and happiness, and then the proper way by using an analogy to rock climbing. There are those who attempt to scale a difficult rock cliff by a method called soloing. They ascend alone, without equipment, companions, or any secure protection. They depend on their own skill and capacity. They do it for the fill of living on the edge with high risk. It is done despite the probability that in time they will fall and be seriously injured or lose their life. They are like many who face the challenges and the temptations of life without the security of following the commandments of God, guided by the Holy Spirit. In today's difficult world, they will almost surely violate critical laws with painful, destructive consequences. Do not solo in life. You will almost certainly 
fall in trans into transgression. There's a safer way to rock climb. When a pair of climbers tackles a difficult ascent, the leader scales the wall, placing anchors a few feet apart. He, or her rope, is linked to the anchor by a carabiner. Safety is assured by a companion called a second, stationed in a very solid position. The lead is protected as the second belays. That is, carefully controls how the rope is paid out. In this way, the lead is assured protection while ascending. Should there be a mis inadvertent misstep, the anchor will safely limit the fall. The second not only secures a lead, but gives encouragement with comments and signals as they communicate back and forth. Their goal is a safe, exhilarating experience by overcoming a significant challenge. They employ techniques and equipment that are tried and proven. The essential equipment includes a secure harness, a reliable rope, a variety of anchors to be fixed to the rock face, a chalk bag to improve grip, and proper boots or special shoes that a leader can use to grip the surface of a steep wall. The companionship has studied the rules and techniques of rock climbing. They've received instruction from experienced climbers and have practiced to become comfortable with the proper moves and the use of equipment. They have planned a route and determined how they will work together. When the leader scales far enough and finds a convenient place that is very safe, he or she belays while taking up the rope as a second follows the pitch or length of rope that has been extended. When the leader is reached, the process is then repeated. One belays while the other climbs, inserting every few feet anchors as protection should there be an inadvertent fall. While technical rock climbing appears to be risky and dangerous, these precautions assure an exhilarating experience safely accomplished by following correct principles. In real life, the anchors are the laws of God that provide protection under all of the challenges that you will face. The rope and carabiners that secure the rope to the anchors represent obedience to those commandments. When you learn those commandments and continue to practice them and have a plan to avoid danger, you will have a secure means of attaining protection against Satan's temptations. You'll develop strength of character that will fortify you against transgression. Should you make a wrong move, there need, need be no enduring problem because of the belaying or help that is available through your repentance. Let the Savior be your lead in life. He will safely lead you over the most 
difficult obstacles of life. His laws are absolutely secure anchors of protection that dispel fear and assure success in an otherwise dangerous world. Such a life will certainly provide you peace and happiness. True and enduring happiness with the accompanying strength, courage, and capacity to overcome the greatest difficulties will come as you center your life in Jesus Christ. Obedience to his teachings provides a secure ascent in the journey of life. That takes effort. While there's no guarantee of overnight results, there is the assurance that in the Lord's time, solutions will come, peace will prevail, and happiness will be yours. The challenges you face, the growth experiences that you encounter, are intent to be temporary scenes played out on the stage of a life of continuing peace and happiness. Sadness, heartache, and disappointment are events in life. It is not intended that they be the substance of life. I do not minimize how hard some of these events can be when the lesson you are to learn is very important. Trials can extend over a long period of time. But they should not be allowed to become the confining focus of everything you do. Your life can and should be wondrously rewarding. It is your understanding and application of the laws of God that will give your life glorious purpose as you ascend and conquer the difficulties of life. That perspective keeps challenges confined to their proper place, stepping stones to further growth and attainment. The Lord's intent on your personal growth and development, your progress is accelerated when you willingly allow Him to lead you through every growth experience you encounter whether you welcome the experience or not. Trust in the Lord. Ask to be led by the Spirit to know His will. Be willing to accept it. You'll then qualify for the greatest happiness and the heights of attainment from this mortal experience. Peace and happiness are the precious fruits of a righteous life. They're only possible because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I'll explain. Each of us makes mistakes in life. They result in broken eternal laws. Justice is that part of Father in Heaven's plan of happiness that maintains order. It is like gravity to a rock climber, ever-present. It's a friend. If eternal laws observe, it responds to your detriment if they are ignored. Justice guarantees that you will receive the blessings you earn for obeying the laws of God. Justice also requires that every broken law be satisfied. When you obey the laws of God, you are blessed. But there is no additional credit earned 
that can be saved to satisfy the laws that you break. If not resolved, broken laws can cause your life to be miserable and would keep you from returning to God. Only the life, teachings, and particularly the atonement of Jesus Christ can release you from this otherwise impossible predicament. The demands of justice for broken law can be satisfied through mercy, earned by your continual repentance and obedience to the laws of God. Such repentance and obedience are absolutely essential for the Atonement to work its complete miracle in your life. The Redeemer can settle your individual account with justice, grant forgiveness to the, through the merciful path of your repentance. Through the Atonement, you can live in a world where justice assures that you will retain what you earn by obedience through His mercy. You can resolve the consequences of broken laws. The Atonement was a selfless act of infinite, eternal consequence, arduously earned alone by the Son of God. Through it, the Savior broke the bonds of death. It justifies our finally being judged by the Redeemer. It can prevent an eternity under the dominion of Satan. It opens the gates to exaltation for all who qualify for forgiveness through repentance and obedience. Pondering the grandeur of the Atonement invokes the most profound feelings of awe, immense gratitude, and deep humility. Those impressions can provide you powerful motivation to keep His commandments and consistently repent of errors for greater peace and happiness. I believe that no matter how diligently you try, you cannot, with your human mind, fully comprehend the eternal significance of the Atonement, nor fully understand how it was accomplished. We can only appreciate in the smallest measure what it cost the Savior in pain, anguish, and suffering, or how difficult it was for our Father in Heaven to see His Son experience incomparable challenge of His Atonement. Even so, you should conscientiously study the Atonement to understand it as well as you can. You can learn what is needful to live His commandments, to enjoy peace and happiness in mortal life. You can qualify with obedient family members to live with Him and your Father in Heaven forever. Lehi taught his son Jacob, No flesh can dwell in the presence of God save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. Jesus Christ possessed spirits that no other being could possibly have. He was a God, Jehovah, before His birth in Bethlehem. His beloved Father not only gave Him His spirit body, 
But Jesus was his only begotten son in the flesh. Our master lived a perfect, sinless life, and therefore was freed from the demands of justice. His mercy pays our debt to justice when we repent and obey him. Since with even our best efforts to obey his teachings, we will still fall short, because of his grace, we will be saved after all we can do. I testify that with unimaginable suffering and agony, at an incalculable price, the Savior earned his right to be our Redeemer, our intermediary, our final judge. I know that he lives and that he loves you. Consistently make him your lead in life. The secure anchors of his laws will assure safety and success as you scale the challenges you will face. You'll not fall into serious transgression. Yours will be a life of peace and happiness, crowned with exaltation in the celestial kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.